In the Four Quartets, T.S. Eliot wrote, quote, What the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living, close quote. This is the After Dinner Scholar, Wyoming Catholic College's weekly podcast about the great books and the liberal arts. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Too often in our day, the dead, after a brief memorial service to, quote, celebrate life, close quote, are simply forgotten. Ashes sprinkled to the four winds or over the sea, buried in graves that no one ever intends to visit. The pious may pray for them on All Souls Day, and maybe other days. But for the most part, the dead are simply gone. They have, we believe, nothing else to say. That is, to say the least, a very modern and fundamentally materialistic view of human beings. In Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Aeneid, and Dante's Divine Comedy, we read about encounters with those who have died. Odysseus seeks wisdom from the prophet Tiresias, and his mother, Aeneas meets his father, Antiochus, parent and prophet, and Dante holds a long conversation in heaven with his great-great-grandfather, Cachaguita. What can we learn from these fictional encounters with the dead? Dr. Glenn Arvbury gave this introduction at the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. Okay, um, as Jim pointed out, we're going to be doing things in the underworld today. If underworld is even the right word, you know, for what you see in the Odyssey, it's not really under. Um, And of course, in Paradiso, it's not under anything. But the, you know, the idea of this kind of epic quest of going to the underworld is sort of what we're going to be touching on, among other things. I want to do these two things. First, um, talk about this, in, this phenomenon of encountering the dead and what we are really looking at when we think about uh, moving from facing death, you know, as we've seen in, in these various works, um, Ivan Illich, I guess, most intensely, you know, what it means to, to face your own death or to watch Iphigenia, you know, come to terms with the fact that she's about to be sacrificed or to watch Antigone as she realizes what it's going to entail for her to die. Um, we're moving from that to something else, which is an encounter with the dead. What does it mean to say that you desire to encounter the dead? or that you know, this, this descent to get some kind of advice from the dead <clears throat> is such a theme in literature. So um, I'm gonna spend some time just talking about the encounter with the dead to begin with. So let me start with this encounter with the dead. Um, I've thought about how to frame this and uh, you know, I, I think I'll just do it uh, by, by personal example. Um, my father, like Ivan Illich, died at the age of 45. I was eight months old. I never knew him. So anything I know about my father has come from what my mother said or what my um, older half-sibling said. He had a family before he married my mother. So, you know, he, he was 
in the last uh, the last months of his life, um, he was in the house with two small children. My sister was two. I was less than a year. Um, his high school age son was there, and my mother was there, you know, dealing with the dying husband and two little children, which is sort of the drama, you know, at, at the beginning uh, of my life. Um, she had to move back in with her parents. You know, the first um, adult male I really knew was my grandfather, who was in his late 70s when I was born. So, you know, it was this sort of um, desire to know my father, right, to know who he was. I remember, uh, even as a small boy, seeing his grave, you know, in the cemetery in 96 South Carolina, where my mother was from. Um, but that was, you know, that was kind of my <laughs> physical experience of my father, you know, was, was seeing his grave. Um, <clears throat> my mother remarried when I was five, but I've always, you know, had all through my childhood had this, you know, desire to see what my real father was like, right? To know, to know who he was and what he was like. So, um, even, you know, all through my high school years and into college, this, this story kind of haunted me, you know, wh who my, you know wh what it was like, particularly sort of in those Ivan Illich months, you know, when he was dying. So one of the first long poems I wrote in college was called Father Dying, and it was taking on the, the voice, you know, the point of view of my father and trying to think through you know, in various images and scenarios, uh, what it was like for him to be coming to terms with this early death. <clears throat> and when I think about it now, it seems to me that, that what I was trying to do was to get access to something crucial that I felt was missing. You know, I hadn't had something. It was missing and I needed to get it and my father was somehow the one who could give it to me or could have given it to me. Some kind of guidance, you know, some kind of direction, you know, whatever it is that you, you feel that, uh, you know, that fathers uh, give to their sons. So it seems to me that that experience of, um, I guess, trying to summon him imaginatively at least was something like what we're looking at, you know, in this poetic descent to the underworld, particularly when you're seeing those of your own family, you know, who have died, who've gone before you and have something to tell you, you know, by way of guidance or um, example or, or something. <clears throat> so when we get into the three epics, what we're looking at is these encounters with the dead um, as images, they are, uh, the words in the Greek are, are suke, psyche, and eidolon, which means a kind of phantom or image. Uh, eidolon is, is actually the, the root of, of our word idol. So you know, you know it's a kind of, you see what I'm saying? If you get the connection between an idol and the eidolon, it's something that's not really taking you to, you know, to the truth of something. This seems to be, I mean, this, this encounter with the dead 
um, this desire for guidance seems to be something it's not so much uh, a literary convention it's not you know it's like like the epics always have to you know involve the convention of a descent to the underworld and a confrontation with the dead but it's more like what this is reflecting is some kind of universal experience that you know that needs to take place in some way and that's why it keeps turning up it's not just in you know in the traditional western epics that this turns up but almost anywhere you encounter it you're going to find an experience like this the Mwendo epic you know in western africa uh, Popol Vuh, you know, in Central America, elsewhere, you get you get the same kind of thing happening. So, it might seem, you know, that given the kind of look at things that we were getting, the sort of uh, take on modernity and everydayness uh, that we get in Ivan Illich, that it would seem like this kind of thing has been left behind, uh, other than uh, spiritualist fads, things like that. Do y'all know anybody who's tried to speak to the dead? Had a medium or something? Yeah, we do. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of spooky, right? And especially if they take it seriously. I don't know why, but in the last month or so, I've twice run into, oh, maybe three times, run into accounts of Arthur Conan Doyle. Do y'all know this? Yeah, he was... This guy invented Sherlock Holmes, you know, who is the most rational of all people. But uh, he himself was deeply into spiritualism, he kept trying to get in touch with, you know, spirits of the dead and tried to get Houdini to help him. And Houdini was going around exposing how mediums do, how they fake it. And, and so he <laughs> was this kind of... What, what do you mean? You invented Sherlock Holmes and you're trying to get me to, anyway. Um, but, you know, that's one mode of modern approach, I suppose. But there are other contemporary, even scientific versions of this desire, you know, to, to encounter the dead. Um, I'm sure that, I won't say anything else about this, but I'm sure y'all have encountered science fiction accounts of uploading your consciousness, you know, to the computer. Um, have you? I mean, yeah, this, this kind of, yeah, they are. Yeah, it's a, it's a prospect so that, you know, you, you somehow upload the whole content of your neural networks onto a computer and so your consciousness could somehow survive mechanically past the death of the body. We'll look into this right after we're done. <laughs> but there, there, are other, there are other versions of this. I just, I just read a novel by a contemporary novelist named Richard Powers. Anybody read him? He had a big novel several years ago called The Overstory, which is really about it's about trees. He's a he's very much an environmentalist. I mean, he writes beautifully, but he's got an he's got an agenda. If you follow me, but um, this novel is called Bewilderment. The protagonist of it uh, has a nine-year-old son. He's just lost his wife, who was this incredibly vibrant, um, beautiful person. Um, she was killed in an automobile accident, and now he has the son to raise on his own. This boy is uh, somewhere on the spectrum, as they say. He's, he's extremely volatile. 
brilliant boy, but you know, goes into rages unpredictably. Um, he can't stay at school because he just, you know, he's too much of a behavior problem, challenging the teachers and so on. Um, so the story involves what happened with the parents before the mother died. She had this friend who was a neurologist who convinced the husband and wife to do brain scans. You know, it's sort of like compiling a, a lot of data having to do with what particular emotions look like on brain scans. You with me? So you would be assigned an emotion, say, uh, depression or, you know, um, intense anticipation. And you were to focus on that emotion, try to evoke it in yourself, and it would get recorded on the brain scan, you know, what part of the brain, et cetera, that this is, is taking place. So the husband and wife both submitted to this, and, you know, the neurologist kept the recordings. The husband got assigned things like, um, you know, uh, boredom. <laughs> Whereas the wife got assigned things like ecstasy. So, you know, anyway, the husbands were recorded as were the wives, but um, these, they, they didn't sort of think anything else about it until the boy's situation after the wife's death got so bad that the school was saying he couldn't go, come back unless he went on some kind of medication. You know, he needed to be able to control his behavior, so they wanted to put him on the usual stuff. And the father hated the idea, pulled him out for a while, but he just got worse and worse. And finally, the neurologist suggested that they try to do some kind of feedback therapy using the brain scan stuff. So how would this work? Well, they'd hook him up. He would see sort of live what was going on in the brain scan. All right, here's, here's my emotion over here. So what I, what I need to do is get into this zone of, of calm or self-control, follow? So, you know, it's not like, it's sort of like moving a little dot on the, on the scan with your mind until you can get it over here into a better range. And you're getting feedback on this all the time. So as your emotion changes, you know, so does, is this making sense? Okay, so um, they did that for the boy, but then they, the, the doctor says, well, what if we give him his mother's brain scan? And he, as he's, you know, doing his own feedback, is, is approximating what was going on in his mother's brain scan when she's thinking of something like ecstasy. And it begins, it begins to have this incredible effect on the boy. Um, he um, not only gets rid of these, these kind of negative emotions that he's having, but he feels increasingly that his mother is within him, you know, that he's speaking uh, to his mother, experiencing his mother's emotions. Um, I won't I won't get into it too much, but his emotional and intellectual improvement is astonishing. You know, over the next several months, while he's doing this on a regular basis, he's experiencing um, this new way to be. He has a kind of guidance in his life that's coming from 
sort of tapping into his mother's own purpose, you know, and her own joy in what she did. And it, uh, it, it sort of, I mean, her passion for birds he has, and he, he feels this kind of steady inner communion with his mother that begins to spill out into his father. He can tell his father what his mother felt for him, things like this. So her presence, you know, is sort of brought back um, into the boy's life and then into their household. And, you know, of course, the novel, what the novel's about is that this, this doesn't last. You know, it sort of can't last. But for a while, it's this kind of uncanny version of, of the ancient theme, you know, of encountering the dead, of having that, of that, that reunion and communion with someone who's been lost that um, provides, you know, the missing guidance that, that the boy needs in his life. Um, and then, of course, it's about inevitably losing that painfully, you know, having to let it go. And, you know, it's, it's a you know, fascinating novel in that regard, though it too has an environmental agenda. <laughs> but yeah, it's called Bewilderment. Yeah. So when we're talking about this kind of phenomenon, which it seems like what we're, what we're after in the encounter with the dead, what, is it, what does it look like for the ancients? Um, I can't let any conference go by without quoting something from the Iliad, so <laughs> that's what I'm about to do. You remember in the Iliad, Achilles loses his best, his dear friend Patroclus, who's killed by Hector. And Achilles is uh, kind of in this uh, strange holding pattern. He has the body of Patroclus there and he drags the body of Hector around it every day, you know. And he's, he, can't, he can't let go of his friend, he can't let go of his hatred of Hector. And then uh, this night comes when finally, uh, well actually this is the night after he kills Hector, so I shouldn't have said what I just said. Any case, anyway, there appeared to him when Achilles is, has fallen asleep, there appeared to him the ghost of unhappy Patroclus, all his likeness, all in his likeness for stature and the lovely eyes and voice and wore such clothing as Patroclus had worn on his body. The ghost came and stood over his head and spoke a word to him. You sleep, Achilles. You have forgotten me, but you were not careless of me when I lived, but only in death. Bury me as quickly as may be. Let me pass through the gates of Hades, the souls, the images of dead men. Hold me at a distance and will not let me cross the river and mingle among them. But I wander as I am by Hades' house of the wide gates, and I call on you in sorrow. Give me your hand. No longer shall I come back from death once you give me my right of burning, and so on. Um, and Achilles, when, when the dream... Um, I mean, when, as, the, as the dream ends, Achilles tries to grasp Patroclus uh, with his arms reached for him but could not take him. But the spirit went underground like vapor with a thin cry, and Achilles started awake staring and drove his hands together 
and spoke, and his words were sorrowful. A wonder, even in the house of Hades, there is left something, a soul and an image. That's the suke, psyche, or an eidolon. But there's no real heart of life in it. For all night long, the phantom of unhappy Patroclus stood over me in lamentation and mourning, and the likeness to him was wonderful, and it told me each thing I should do. So again, this encounter with the dead, which is uh, ultimately unsatisfying, right? You can't grasp them, you can't hold on to this image. We get this repeated, you know, in, in just about everything else we read here. Um, but then the what you're supposed to do. That's what you that's what you get from the from the encounter with the dead. This kind of pointing a direction. Um, so you think, all right. Uh, where else do we see this in the ancient world? Remember something in the Bible? I think we've already mentioned this in the last day or two. I'm thinking of where you, Witch of Endor, right? That's what I was thinking of. Um, just because Saul, King Saul has, has no guidance from God because he's kind of on the outs for various reasons. Um, he gets no response to his prayer. The prophets can't tell him anything. So Saul goes to the witch of Endor and actually summons up the, the shade of, of the prophet Samuel, which it, I mean, it, it seems odd when you read it, right? Where, where is Samuel to be so summoned? But Samuel comes up and you know gives Saul the... Um, same, tells him the same thing he had told him before he died, that God has chosen David, right? That, that Saul's uh, been rejected by God and so on. But summoning up the dead, you know, is, is again, for some kind of guidance. How is Saul to deal with the Philistines? You know, he's, he, can't, he can't get anything through the usual channels, so he summons up the dead prophet to, to give him his guidance. So in both cases, in, in the Iliad and in, in Samuel, we, we get this, this sense of the realm of the dead, this place you know, where, where the dead reside, which is, of course, picked up uh, amply in the Odyssey and the Aeneid and, and the whole of Dante's Divine Comedy, which is set in the realm of the dead. Um, what we see in the Odyssey is obviously amplified from the Iliad, but it's also a little different. There's, when you watch Odysseus go to the realm of the dead, there's no moment there where you encounter, say, the gates of Hades that you're supposed to get through. It doesn't seem to be under so much as out, outside, peripheral, you know, at the very edge of everything is where the dead are. Um, Odysseus is, is telling this story about uh, his journey to the underworld to the Phaeacians, who are the people whose uh, homeland he's come to after you know, all these years of wandering. And they're the ones who are finally going to take him home to Ithaca. But he's telling this story to them um, in their land after getting off Calypso's island where he's been for seven years. We can, we can fill in this context a bit more uh, later. 
he's been given, Odysseus has been given this kind of commission by Circe. You remember who Circe is? She's the kind of uh, enchantress, sorceress. When Odysseus' men first come to her, she turns them into pigs, you know, and they make pig noises. <laughs> and so yeah, I always think of her as releasing their inner simile. <laughs> there are lions and wolves bounding around, but, you know, Odysseus' men, no, they all turn into pigs. So um, anyway, Circe tells Odysseus to, to make this journey to the underworld and to see Tiresias, whom you've already met in Antigone, right? He's the great Theban prophet, uh, and he's the one who's going to give Odysseus this prospect of what he faces in the future, uh, which, I mean, he never mentions the seven years with Calypso. He gives a kind of if-then scenario. If you can keep yourself and your men from eating the cattle of Thronachia, you know, that belong to Helios, then you can get safely back home. But you get two figures here that Odysseus meets, uh, Tiresias and his mother, Anticlea, uh, also Elpinor, right, who shows up. And <laughs> you remember the story, Elpinor um, woke up on Circe's roof, apparently after having spent a little too long at the cocktail hour, and uh, didn't think to go down by the ladder, as he puts it. <laughs> so he blunders up and, and falls off the edge of the roof and breaks his neck. And Odysseus wonders how he got there, you know, before they did, which, which is, I guess, <laughs> one of the mysteries of, of being dead. In any case, there's some anomalies here. Elpinor can speak without drinking the blood, right? There's no evidence that Elpinor has to do anything except uh, talk to Odysseus. So maybe there's a, you know, I'm not sure this is all, con yeah, his body's not buried. He wants, he wants Odysseus to go back and bury them. So maybe he's not really in hell yet, something like that, right? But um, if you think about the, the two major things that Odysseus gets in this first part, um, the, the kind of content that he gets from Tiresias all has to do with what he's going to face, right? The choices that he's going to have. This is the first hint he gets of the suitors who are back home in Ithaca um, and how it, it, he gets the kind of divine okay, you know, to, to slaughter the suitors. Uh, and then he gets this message that he's going to be uh, forced, even after he gets home, to go on another journey, which will take him to um, a place where somebody doesn't even recognize what an oar is, and that's where he's to make sacrifices to, to Poseidon. All right, so in this, in this underworld, prophecy and kinship seem to be broken into two different parts. You, you follow me? Tiresias is the prophet. He's the one who gives a kind of big overview of what Odysseus' life is going to be like. But then Anticlea, Odysseus' mother, is, you know, this is where you get the, the kind of family bond. And he doesn't even know that she's dead until he sees her, her ghost show up there. 
She has to drink the blood, which must be a disconcerting sight, right? To see the mother who doesn't know you, you know, drinking the blood of these sacrifices in order to be able to speak. Um, so she has the, the kind of home truths, if you follow me. She's the one who tells Odysseus about what's going on with Penelope and her fidelity and Telemachus, uh, which I always read with puzzlement because she says Telemachus is managing the household and, you know, participating in councils and that, that's just not true. So, uh, in, <laughs> her perspective on of Telemachus, right. Um, but again, if you look on 113 in your packet, we get this episode starting at line 204. Can somebody read that, please? Line 204 on page 113. So she spoke, but I, pondering in my heart, yet wished to take the soul of my dead mother in my arms. Three times I started toward her, and my heart was urgent to hold her. And three times she fluttered out of my hands like a shadow or a dream, and the sorrow sharpened at the heart within me. And so I spoke to her and addressed her in winged words, saying, Mother, why will you not wait for me when I am trying to hold you? so that even in Hades, with our arms embracing, we can both take the satisfaction of dismal mourning? Or are you nothing but an image that proud Persephone sent my way to make me grieve all the more for sorrow? So I spoke, and my queenly mother answered me quickly, O oh, my child, ill-fated beyond all other mortals, this is not Persephone, daughter of Zeus, beguiling you, but it is only what happens when they die to all mortals. The sinews no longer hold the flesh and bone together, and once the spirit has left the white bones, all the rest of the body is made subject to the fire's strong fury. But the soul flitters out like a dream and flies away. Therefore, you must strive back toward the light again, with all speed, but remember these things for your wife, so you may tell her hereafter. So twice, um, the shadow or a dream, right? Uh, the soul is compared to a dream. Um, you might think what, what that's getting at. Um, the dream world and the underworld have some kind of kinship, you know, that's being pointed out here. If you want to understand the kind of being of the dead, then you, you think about the kind of being of figures in a dream. You know, um, if you had the experience of uh, having someone who, is, who has died turn up in your dream, is that, I mean, I don't, when, I, when that happens to me, it doesn't feel like a regular dream. It feels like a, a kind of visitation, you know, or, or something. It's like the whole of that, who that person was has kind of come back in the dream to be uh, taken in one way or the other. But 
you know, you try to grasp that and, you know, there, there's no holding on to it. It's, it's an insubstantial, bodiless image. Um, the being of an image, being of a dream, that's kind of what the dead are like in, the, in this vision of the underworld. Um, I don't know, when I, when I think about this sort of bodilessness, it, it's, you, I don't know, do you ever get the, a, a kind of uncanny sense watching old films? Like you're watching comedies from the 30s or, or something like that, and everyone in the film is alive, right? And yet you're quite aware that everyone in the film is dead and has long been dead, right? Um, it's even possible to fall in love with, you know, people in, in the film. Our son very neatly fell in love with Marilyn Monroe when he was six years old. <laughs> he, was, he was watching something with Marilyn Monroe in it. Some like it not. Some like it. I know. <laughs> We're, we're, we're a terrible parent. <laughs> anyway, my wife always says she saw this kind of light go on. Oh, that, that's what it's, you know, anyway. <laughs> but there's something about, you know, the, the dream, the, the image, the light, you know, the being of the image that is, you know, is being pointed to with, with this whole way of imagining the dead. But, I mean, to the point, the... The Greeks seem to, at least in the Odyssey, this, this all has to do with homecoming. You know, going to the dead and finding out what you're to do has to do with moving you toward what's necessary for homecoming, which has to do with what's been lost, you know, and what you feel that you can perhaps get back if you can successfully carry out what the dream dead are urging you to do. When you shift to the Roman world, this doesn't have to do with homecoming. Uh, in fact, homecoming is what's ruled out from the start. Aeneas is uh, driven out when Troy is destroyed. There's no going back to Troy. So the whole urgency of, of the Aeneid is toward founding. Uh, Aeneas is the, the kind of destined founder of what will eventually be Rome. But there's also a continuity back with, with the past. It's not as though Troy has been rejected, so much is lost, and so as much of Troy as you can take with you is what you want to do when you found Rome. So it's about the future, but it's also about somehow bringing the ancestral past with you. Famous image here, right, is of Aeneas leading his son, <sighs> Ascanius by the hand while he's carrying his father Anchises, right? You carry the past um, you, and you, the, the future is something you bring with you. This part that you have in your text is from book six of the Aeneid when Odysseus, I mean, when Aeneas encounters his father Anchises in the underworld. Now this has been building up uh, throughout most of the poem. Aeneas, um, as I've said, takes his father with him when he escapes from Troy. Uh, they have several false starts, places where they think they're going to set up a new, a new uh, Troy. 
But uh, anyway, he keeps being urged on by dreams. His father dies in Sicily. There's a, a kind of interlude in Carthage when Aeneas has his liaison with Dido, and then he's kind of impelled uh, to go toward Rome. And just before he gets to uh, where, where he's going to start the, the whole movement toward uh, meeting Latinus and, you know, meeting Lavinia and so on, uh, he has this episode when he goes to the underworld. So Anchises, uh, the father of Aeneas, combines, if you follow me, he combines the figure of Tiresias with the kinship figure so that, you know, this is both the, the loyalty that you have to your father, the guidance you want from your father, and also the, the kind of prophetic vision that Tiresias presented to Odysseus. Um, what we're seeing in these passages is a preview of Rome. So it's, you know, it's kind of a survey of Roman history seen as a forecast, you know, of what's going to happen. It jumps around, interestingly. You'll see Romulus, and then you'll see Caesar Augustus, and then you'll get back to Numa, you know, who was actually the successor of Romulus, and it, you know, it jumps around through various other figures. Um, at the bottom of 118, you see Anchises give a kind of more personal look at what Aeneas is going to be facing in the immediate future. This starts at 968. Once Anchises has led his son through each new scene and fired his soul with a love of glory still to come, he tells him next of the wars Aeneas must wage, still must wage, and tells of Laurentine peoples, tells of Latinus city, and how he should shun or shoulder each ordeal that he must meet. And then comes uh, a very strange passage. <coughs> there are twin gates of sleep. One, they say, is called the Gate of Horn, and it offers easy passage to all true shades. The other glistens with ivory, radiant, flawless, but through it the dead send false dreams up toward the sky. And here Anchises, his vision told in full, escorts his son and Sybil both and shows them out now through the ivory gate. And then Aeneas, once coming up from this, goes back to his own ships and then they begin their movement toward where they're, you know, toward the Tiber where they're going to start their movement toward Rome. Um, lots of questions here. One obviously has to do with why these are called the gates of sleep, right? We thought this was a descent to the underworld, but suddenly the gates are the gates of sleep, as though, you know, the sleep, again, sleep in the underworld had some uh, crucial connection. And the other obviously has to do with what we mean when we say that these are, are false dreams coming out. Um, what is, I mean, this is one of the big questions of the Aeneid, obviously. What, what does it mean that this whole vision of the underworld and the future of Rome, which we're pretty sure is going to happen since we can look back and say that it did, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what does this mean that it's a false dream? In, in what sense might that be the case? 
So we can maybe begin our speculation with the panel and continue it in the seminars, because I think it's a, it's a question about also about what it means to encounter the dead. Um, a few words about Dante's Commedia. Um, as you know, Dante has descended through the inferno where he makes his, his turn upward right at the very end. He's ascended the mountain of Purgatorio, all this time led by Virgil. Um, and at the very top of Purgatorio, uh, Virgil disappears and Beatrice takes over guiding him. And in the Paradiso, we're moving upward from sphere to sphere as Dante you know, is, is taken toward what, what will eventually be uh, the beatific vision. Now, right here, we're in the sphere of Mars, and Dante's just seen um, the Milky Way as a, as a kind of cross um, that's it's kind of a cross conformed to the circle. It's almost like the, you know, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The, the two, uh, the cross perfectly fits the circle. All right. All right. So um, in one of the arms of the cross, Dante's, Dante sees this spark come clear and come down from one of the arms of the circle like a meteor. And this is the, the figure that he meets um, in, in the three cantos that you have in your reading. This is his ancestor, Caccia Guida, uh, who tells us a little bit about himself. He was a martyr for Christianity who died in the Second Crusade. Um, and he's the, the ancestor of, of Dante that, um, that, that we meet here. Uh, he actually refers to Anchises on page 119, right at the beginning of Canto 15, down at the bottom of page 119. With such affection did Anchises' shade reach out if our greatest muse is owed belief when in Elysium he knew his son, and so on. So, Anchises kind of becomes Cacioguida, and Cacioguida is the, the figure, the relative, um, the dead whom Dante has never met, who is going to give him the, the crucial guidance that he needs to go on and, and uh, write the poem, uh, the Commedia. So when we're thinking about this section, which is certainly the one you know, most in need of footnotes, um, one question that we might want to bring up is why it's so important to see the prophecy that Cacioguida gives him about Dante himself. Um, there, there's something different going on here. When you shift from, from the Greek to the Roman, you're shifting from homecoming to founding, right, to the future. And when you shift from uh, the Roman to this Christian vision, what happens to both of those? I mean, there's, is there homecoming here? Is there a, a founding going on? It, it's kind of hard to see that either is the case. And, and what we get instead is, is a kind of meditation on Dante's exile. Uh, Dante 
as Cacciaguida tells him, is going to be exiled from Florence, and he's going to wander. He's going to see what, how uh, harsh it is to taste the bread of others, not to have his own home, and so on. So what is it that we're being shown in the Christian vision that's pushing you away from both uh, the idea of the kind of homecoming we see for Odysseus and the kind of civic, political, historical founding that we see with, with um, Aeneas. So maybe when we go to those passages on 126 and 127 about Dante's exile, we ask, maybe we ask, what is this, what is this saying about all of us, you know, as, as Christians? on this sort of journey to encounter the dead that is different from what we see in the other epics. The thought of death can be, perhaps it should be, disconcerting. And Homer's description of the dead gathered around the pool of blood is nothing if not disconcerting, as is the first third of Dante's Commedia, as he travels the circles of hell. St. Robert Bellarmine, Seeking to disconcert and thus convert his congregation in Belgium, preached four sermons on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. At the 2022 Wyoming School of Catholic Thought, we studied Bellarmine's sermon on death. And next week, the Afternooner Scholar will feature Dr. Scott Olson's introduction to that sermon. Alas, Bellarmine's sermons are not available on the internet but there's a new collection of them, which you can purchase and from which you will benefit a great deal. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.